Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, February 20th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined today by the lone writer that we have available on the podcast today. That is Chris Evangelista. Chris, how's it going? All right. How are you? I actually, to be completely honest with you, I just spilled barbecue sauce all over my pants. Uh, I am, I'm prepping a uh, pork loin for dinner tonight. I put it in the crock pot and just spilled barbecue sauce everywhere. So oh. now my home office smells like barbecue sauce. It's a little weird. Uh, but this is, this is going to be a weird episode, Chris, because it's just you and me today. Yeah. Peter is out covering an event for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the, the uh, home video release of that. HT is on a set visit right now, so it's just you and me. we got a lot of news to talk about, though, so let's kick things off with the Captain Marvel early buzz, which uh, the movie played to critics last night uh, for junket screenings and things like that. I think people are going to be doing interviews very soon, so we should have a lot of coverage coming up on SlashFilm.com, so stay tuned for all of that. But the first wave of reactions hit the internet last night. And uh, our own Peter Sferetta says, Captain Marvel is a great origin story. Brie Larson's buddy cop chemistry with Samuel L. Jackson is so much fun, and her relationship with Lashana Lynch is the real heart of it. Ben Mendelsohn and the cat both steal the show. Marvel does a prequel right, not over-explaining too much, but giving us unexpected answers in interesting ways. It's the MCU's most multi-layered villain story, a fun 90s soundtrack, but sometimes the song choices feel too obvious. And that seems to be fairly representative of the general vibe for what people are feeling about Captain Marvel. A lot of people are talking about how surprising this movie is, which I personally found to be sort of a surprising notion because, you know, we... You know this as well as, as I do, Chris. We we cover every aspect of this movie that's made public, you know, from the moment it's announced all the way through because it's a big Marvel movie. So I'm just happy to hear that there are some surprises in store for us at all. Are you looking forward to Captain Marvel? Have you been excited about what you've seen from the trailers so far? Uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've been a little underwhelmed by the trailers, but I, I definitely, you know, I definitely will see it. I definitely hope it's good. Um I just, I, I've said this before, I'm just a little burned out in general on Marvel. Like the, the I, I barely enjoyed uh, Infinity War and I'm not exactly 
that excited for Endgame. Like, I just feel like they're all following a formula, and that's one of the reasons I loved uh, Into the Spider-Verse so much, because it was so different, and that's really what I'm looking for at this point. I'm looking for different stuff, and this doesn't look very different, but as you just said, you know, there are apparently surprises in the film, so that would be nice. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. I, I think I was sort of on the same page as you in terms of like not being super stoked by what I saw with the trailers and and feeling a little bit of that burnout. I think I'm I'm not quite to your level yet on that part. I'm still looking forward to Endgame. Um, but yeah, a lot of other people you can you can read the whole piece at slashfilm.com, but people are calling this movie pure joy. Somebody I think it was Scott Menzel said this is one of his favorite Marvel movies of all time, which I feel like somebody says that every time a new Marvel movie comes out. So uh, there's that you can go ahead and check that box off but um yeah mo- mostly it's it's very positive stuff about this movie everybody says that brie larson is great mike ryan from uprock said that uh, it's pretty much an all-in cosmic space movie it's a lot weirder than he expected and it's not wacky like the guardians of the galaxy movies it's more like ray snapping into endless mirrors from the last jedi style like that kind of stuff so that's very intriguing to me because from what i've seen in the trailers it hasn't really been there hasn't really been too much to point to the overall weirdness of this movie so uh the film comes out on march 8th and that's pretty soon and again we're gonna have a lot more coverage coming up soon chris you wrote every single other story that we're gonna be talking about today so let's just jump into one of the bigger ones and that is uh, amazon's lord of the rings tv series tell us about the levels that they're going to to preserve the secrecy of the show uh yeah so we we know very little about the lord of the rings uh amazon tv series and it turns out there's a good reason for that uh jennifer salk who's amazon studios uh president did an interview recently where she said uh down in santa monica where the the writer's room is for the show they're going through uh very extreme lengths to keep things under wraps they have the windows taped closed and there's a security guard outside and you have to have, there's a, like a fingerprint scanner to get in. And there's all this like super secretive stuff that sounds more in line for like the CIA than a show about orcs. But that's where, uh, <laughs> that's where Amazon is right now. They're, they're hell bent on protecting their investment because they spent a lot of money on this show. So uh, it, it seems unlikely we're, we're going to learn anything about the show before Amazon wants us to. Yeah, and I think they spent something like $250 million just on the rights to make the show, like not even talking about any of the production stuff. So I guess this this level of secrecy makes sense because they want to preserve you know, what they've what they've spent so much money on. Um, but the idea of, uh, of taping all of the windows closed in a writer's room, that can't foster a creative environment for those writers, can it? Yeah, I don't know. It also sounds like a fire hazard. Like, what if there's like a fire in that room? The windows are shut, and there's a guard, and they they're like trying to frantically work the fingerprint scanner to get out of there. It just sounds dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You, as you mentioned, we don't really know too much about the show. I think we know that it's going to be set hundreds of years before the events of the Lord of the Rings, or at least that's what the the map that the Amazon's. Uh, social media accounts for this new Lord of the Rings show have been sort of alluding to. Uh, We know that J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay are going to be the showrunners for this thing. They are writers who have worked on, I think they did some uncredited work on the script for Star Trek Beyond. They've been in the Star Trek universe for a little while. I think they were sort of, um, you know, bouncing around, touching up scripts on, on several of the Abrams movies. And, um, 
but basically they, they haven't had any produced credits yet with their names officially on it as like the key writers. So they're sort of an unknown quantity. Um, Chris, I know that you are a big fan of Peter Jackson's original Lord of the Rings series and or, or trilogy, I should say. And I know we've, we've talked about this series before, but as we're getting closer, as we're starting to see some of that material come out on Amazon social media accounts, are you? I want to take your temperature on the show. What are you? What are you feeling about uh, an Amazon Lord of the Rings series right now? I really don't know. It's so. Um, I'm. I'm definitely interested in it in the sense that I. I love that you know that original film trilogy, and if they can, if they can capture like the magic of that. I'll be into it. But I. I don't know. I, I really want to know more before I get my hopes up. Yeah, hopefully we'll find out some some casting news or something soon. It seems like with this ramping up of the um, their Instagram accounts and you know posting little pictures of these maps and stuff like that of of the world of Middle Earth that they're going to be working in, maybe they're they're ramping up to some sort of casting announcement or at least you know some writers or directors or something that that we can sort of uh, sink our teeth into and and get a better idea of what they have going on there. Um, all right, so let's jump from one fantasy related story to another and that is a reboot of the storyteller is in the works what's going on with this one chris um back in the 80s uh, i think it was 1987 there was this tv series it only lasted one season really it was called the storyteller and it was from jim henson's workshop and it had you know the gem the jim henson creatures in it the you know puppets that he created from his workshop and the show had John Hurt, who uh, has passed away now, but he played, you know, the, the titular storyteller. And every episode would start with him and his dog, who was a, uh, a puppet, uh, you know, introducing a story based on, you know, fairy tales or folklore. And then the story would unfold with, you know, more Henson creatures. Um, that show is now getting a reboot courtesy of Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is uh, executive producing it and he's going to write it and um, you can read the full quote he gives, but he makes it sound like the show is going to be a lot more detailed than the Henson one. The Henson one, you know, it, it had the storyteller basically as a framing device, but from his quote, Neil Gaiman's recent quote, it makes it sound like the, the storyteller is actually going to be like a main character in the show and they're going to try and work the stories into his story. It, it sounds a lot more ambitious, I guess is the word than the original, but it's still going to have, you know, the Henson workshop involved and they're going to try and, you know, have that same sort of magical Jim Henson vibe to it. And uh, that's really all we know at the moment. There's no home for it yet. There's no sh clear indication of where it's going to air. Um, Neil Gaiman did say, it's going to be adapted for the the binge watching generation, so that sort of applies. They're they're looking for a streaming home for it, but uh, that's really the bulk of what we know at the moment. Man, that sounds really cool to me. I never saw the original series, but my old roommate was a big fan of it, and he, you know, just from him like explaining the concept, I was sort of I've always been intrigued by the show, but just never got around to checking it out. Um, I, I wonder if like the original series is available streaming anywhere right now, but. I know that the Jim Henson Company is working on a TV version of The Dark Crystal at Netflix, so maybe because of that relationship, that that might be a natural home for this version of the storyteller. But Chris, do, do you have any relationship with the original show? Did you see a, a lot of those episodes when you were growing up or anything? Uh, yeah, I, I did watch it when it aired, um, or maybe in reruns, because... You know, I was alive in 1987, but I don't know if I would remember something that happened. <laughs> but um, I, I did watch it, you know, when it was on. I think I maybe like rented VHS tapes of of certain episodes. They had like individual episodes, and 
Uh, but you know, I, I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman's work now. So uh, his involvement is is what really has me interested in in this new version. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because I've only read uh, one Neil Gaiman book, I think, which is uh, I read American Gods, and I was sort of mixed on it. I love the mythological parts of it like the parts where it got really wild and out there um th those were the the elements that drew me to that book in the first place and i was a little disappointed to find that so much of it is, is like relatively straightforward but i know he's like a huge fantasy guy he has a, a massive following have you read a lot of his um other books and i know you've watched like the american gods tv show which i have not yet but what do you think about him as a fit for this particular property I mean, he's a great fit for this because he's he's so good with like folklore and stuff like that. And uh, even though I am a big fan of his, I actually think I don't like American Gods. It's actually one of my like least favorite of his books. So I'm not surprised you were a little underwhelmed by it. But a lot of his others, he's a really great short story writer. I think he's a better short story writer than he is a novelist. So, you know, he has several books that collect his short stories and those are all fantastic. Huh, yeah, I might have to uh, to jump into one of those. I, maybe I just picked the wrong entry point for, for Gaiman's uh, body of work. But uh, all right, so that's the storyteller. Hopefully we'll have more information about that soon, like where it's going to end up and, and who's going to be involved. Because again, with that anthology format that everybody seems to be adopting these days, maybe there's a lot of opportunities for an, a bunch of other big name people to sort of cycle through and, and relive some of that, um, you know, puppet friendly a tactile type of storytelling that we don't really see on TV or, or streaming that much these days anymore. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about the potential for this, for sure. Chris, tell us about our old friend Steven Spielberg. He, uh, he's he been making some waves with some comments recently. What, what's uh, old Stevie up to these days? Steven Spielberg does not like streaming. He has said this before in the past. Um, last year, he, he uh, raised a few eyebrows when he was saying um, Netflix movies, even if they're good, they shouldn't be considered real movies. He says they should be considered TV movies. And he was saying, you know, Netflix movies shouldn't win Oscars. They should win Emmys because they're on TV. And uh, that, you know, that got a lot of um, uh, pushback because it's it's kind of a, a silly statement. But he's he's all about the theatrical experience that's, you know, he's all in on it. And um, during a, uh, a recent speech at the CAS awards, he, he doubled down on this. He didn't call out, you know, Netflix or streaming in general, but uh, the gist of his speech was basically, you know, nothing beats going to a movie theater. And, you know, our, our job as filmmakers is to continue making movies just for theaters and not, you know, to worry about any other sort of platform. So once again, he's just really not happy with streaming, which is, you know, it's just unfortunate because that's, you know, that's where the direction of the film landscape is going. More and more filmmakers are turning towards streaming because, you know, for one thing, they have more freedom there. And for another thing, you know, Hollywood has become more and more, devoted to just big, you know, IP. They, they don't really care about smaller or mid-budget films and, you know, streaming services like Netflix will do that. And, you know, that's not a problem for Steven Spielberg. Everything Steven Spielberg makes 
is a big movie. Even if he's not making a blockbuster, quote unquote, it's a Spielberg movie, so it's going to be big. So I don't think he realizes that he, you know, he doesn't have to worry about the same sort of problem that, you know, some other filmmakers worry about. Yeah, I was just looking this up. The budget of Ready Player One, which is his most recent movie, was $175 million. So, like, it's very easy for Steven Spielberg to say these things. Um, I mean, I, it's, it's difficult because it, it, this seems like uh, Steven Spielberg is the uncle that comes to a holiday meal and just sort of seems like a little out of touch with what's going on. Like, you, you sort of feel like he means well. But he doesn't he doesn't really have a good understanding of what's going on, which is strange because, you know, he like runs a studio and like is uh, one of the most beloved filmmakers to ever live. So it seems like he should be a little bit more clued in to the benefits of streaming because you have places like Netflix who are essentially giving filmmakers like Alfonso Cuaron and the Coen brothers and Steven Soderbergh and people like that, the budgets to make movies that traditional Hollywood studios won't let them make. So, I mean, yes, I guess there is a difference between, uh, you know, going to a movie theater and watching uh, Ready Player One, for example, and then, you know, uh, checking out the Ballad of Buster Scruggs on your couch. But uh, is there a a definable value difference between those two in terms of like the piece of art that you're watching. I don't know. That's a tough conversation. Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people differ on this, you know, in my personal experience, the answer is no, I'm just as happy watching stuff at home as I am on a big screen. And, you know, it's definitely different from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, as big as your TV is, it's nothing compared to a huge, movie screen but i don't know I, I always go back to you know when i was growing up a lot of the movies i consider you know to be classics weren't things i saw in movie theaters like you know i, I never saw goodfellas in a movie theater because i was too young when i was in theaters but that's you know i saw that on tv and it wasn't even a, a big tv at the time it was you know the older 1990s tvs which were a lot smaller and a lot clunkier than tvs we have now mm -hmm. and it didn't at all, you know, make me be like, well, this movie isn't as good. You know, I still I've never seen that on a theater. And it, I, I consider that to be my, my favorite movie of all time. So I don't really think, you know, while I, I understand where Spielberg is coming from and I know he has the best intentions and I think he's one of the best filmmakers, you know, of all time. I just I just can't help but think he's off base with this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I want to say that, like, I think both of us definitely agree that we don't want the theatrical experience to go away. And I hope that that even the rise of Netflix and, and Amazon and streaming services don't eventually lead to that. And maybe that's all he's trying to say here is that he's but he's just saying it in a maybe a, a way that he could have made things a little bit more clear. Um, but, you know, it, it makes sense, especially considering, you know, what he's done in his career, that he would be a fighter for the theatrical experience. That's sort of like where he came up and, and that's how he fell in love with movies. I think, you know, the home video as a concept didn't even exist when he was a kid. Uh, and he's such a nostalgic person. So, 
um, yeah, a lot to unpack there with Spielberg comments, but um, maybe he'll, <laughs> maybe somebody will uh, will make a movie uh, on Netflix or, or one of these streaming services one day that will get him to change his mind. I don't know, maybe it's it's it'll be one movie that everything really suddenly clicks for him, or uh, or maybe it'll just be like a, a slow realization of like, oh, maybe there's a little bit more to this than than it seems. But uh, yeah, uh, Chris, finally, let's wrap up by talking about a subject that's close to your heart: horror movies. Uh, Blumhouse, the uh, production company that's run by Jason Blum, the producer, uh, they have, I mean, in last year alone, they they produced a reboot of Halloween, and it seems like there are several other contenders for big horror franchises that they may be working on in the future. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, Jason Blum, who runs Blumhouse, he's he's mentioned this before. Uh, back when you know Halloween was about to come out, he did a, a Twitter Q and A. And people asked, you know, are there any other big properties you'd like to reboot? And he said, absolutely. And uh, recently he was interviewed and he was asked a similar question. Um, He was was asked specifically about both uh, Scream and Hellraiser and asked if he would like to reboot either of them or both of them. And he said, uh, I would like to do both of them, but it's a right situation with both movies. It's very tangled and complicated. It's one thing to say you want to do them. It's a whole other thing to actually get to do it. And, um, you know, he also said, uh, you know, we've definitely discussed working on it, but there's nothing happening right now. So, you know, the key phrase there is him saying there's nothing happening right now. But at the same time, he says, you know, they've discussed it. So it's definitely something he wants to do if he can get the rights to, you know, to, to play out. But at the moment, you know, there's nothing official, but it's, you know, it's something to keep in mind for the future. So do you, as a big horror fan yourself, do you consider Scream and or Hellraiser to be sacrosanct movies that don't need remakes at all? It, you know, it's, it's tough. Scream is very much a movie of like the nineties. So um, I don't know how you could, you could do it today but i I think there might be a way i think there is a way if done right but i don't really know what that is as for hellraiser i think that can fit really into any era and i think they could they could definitely find a way to make that work so in in your headline for this article you say could blumhouse reboot every horror franchise and i think that's partially a joke but i mean at this point what if that that were to happen what if blumhouse were to suddenly get the rights what if you know halloween was successful enough all of these companies who have these rights to franchises that have just been you know lapsing and and sitting there and collecting dust what if they're like hey you know what just go for it you make all of this and they start ch- you know churning out one movie uh, you know one or two big franchise movies a year is this the company that you would want to see that happen with? Is there another place in Hollywood right now that you trust more than Blumhouse to be able to uh, maybe translate these these kinds of stories to a modern audience? Uh, it, it's tough. It depends on what it is because Blumhouse works very cheap and they work very fast. And usually that's beneficial because it doesn't require a lot of their movies to be big hits, but it really depends on what they're adapting. And I mean, in all honesty, I'd rather they just start, they just keep doing their own thing. Like they have their own franchise in, you know, happy death day, which I think is, is really promising and, and a lot of fun. And I'd rather they, they keep doing stuff like that than worry about rebooting everything. But I also know at the same time, you know, rebooted stuff, stuff that's already established, 
gets more attention. People pay more attention to that, as unfortunate as it may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that, you know, they're working on, we were talking the other day about how uh, they're going to be making eight movies direct to Amazon's streaming service. And I think the plan there is for them to be using like um, using that deal as an opportunity as like a like a proving ground for like more diverse filmmakers. So at least it seems like Blumhouse is not a um, uh, is a company that at least has a creative vision behind it and and it, you know seems to be moving in the right direction in terms of like giving the uh, filmmakers the the control that they need like you mentioned they keep the budgets down so they can increase the the creative freedom of the people who are actually making these things and actually um you know produce a, a product that feels like it is uh it, that it that has an identity behind it so even if they were to remake i know what you did last summer or something maybe they could find somebody out there with enough of a take on it that it would feel fresh and new and interesting and and like it's coming from this one person's voice instead of just a rehash so um i guess let's let's end with this is there any um uh, i guess famous horror franchise that you would not want to see blumhouse um adapt or or you know uh, remake in any way do you think is there any one that you can think of that um their low budget approach might not be the best fit for not at the top of my head, honestly, not not in terms of franchises. I mean, there are like solo horror films, which I would never want them to touch. But when it comes to franchises, I, I don't think anything is really that untouchable at this point. If, if you find the right people and uh, what I've learned from the past is, you know, there was a there was a period where Platinum Dunes was remaking all those horror movies. And what I've learned from that is if they end up making one that, you know, ends up sucking, it just fades away. Like no, no one cares about that terrible nightmare on Elm street remake platinum dooms made. And we'll always have, you know, the original to turn to. So, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was probably a lot more, um, you know, snobby about it. Like, you know, I remember when they announced the, the dawn of the dead remake, I was furious, but then that movie ended up being fine. So, uh, I think as I've gotten older, I've learned that it really, doesn't matter as long as either the remake turns out well or it just fades away and i just stick with the original <laughs> all right yeah i think it's a good a good outlook and a good way to uh to end on today's episode so that is uh, that's it you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked in the show notes of this episode slashfilm daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on itunes google podcasts overcast uh, spotify all the popular podcast apps and don't forget to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. If you have any questions for the Life Advice with Chris Evangelista corner, uh, feel free to shoot those in there at peter at slashfilm.com as well. Don't forget also to leave your name and general geographic location in those emails in case we mention yours on the air. Uh, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word about the show any way you can. Chris, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com every day, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow.